What is leadership and how do we get better leaders? Welcome to the Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we discuss leadership and some of the psychological forces at work in our selecting people to follow. This is an important topic, not just in terms of the election season that we find ourselves in, but offering broad terms for the well-being of our society. We're going to play for you an interview we conducted with Dr. Dan Lichty. Dr. Lichty is a professor of social work at Illinois State University. His research includes social work theory, post-Freudian anthropology, death education, aging and society, and medical ethics. He's the world's foremost authority on the work of Ernest Becker. He's author or editor of nine books, including The Ernest Becker Reader, Transference and Transcendence, Death and Denial, and Reflecting on Faith in a Post-Christian Time. This interview is several years old and predates the election of Donald Trump, but it remains evergreen in its thoughtful analysis of what leadership is and how it relates to our governing process. I think you'll find it remarkably prescient. Here's the interview with Dr. Lichty. Dr. Lichty, welcome to Perspective. Thank you. Dan, you're considered one of the foremost authorities on the writings of Ernest Becker. Could you just review briefly some of his key concepts and ideas? Well, I think that the most important thing that Becker noticed was that our sense of mortality, our recognition that we are mortal beings, plays a key role as a motivating factor for all kinds of human behavior, both individual behavior and collective or social behavior. And once he had that insight, he was able to go back to the literature and use that as a sort of organizing principle to pull together a whole lot of theory and a whole lot of ideas that people have had in the past and sort of connect them through that concept. And many of our guests have spoken about the the existential condition. Could you elaborate on that? What is the existential condition? Well, the existential con- condition is essentially that we are mortal beings and we have the intelligence to know that we're mortal beings. We share with all animals this life force, this will to continue living, this life instinct, you could call it, and yet we are an animal that has the knowledge that we will die. And that creates potentially, at least, a large clash, a big resulting anxiety, pool of anxiety that no other animal has to deal with. And that's really what I think is unique about the human psyche, the human the way that humans think, or human psychology, as opposed to animal psychology. And how do we how do we then deal with that anxiety? We've spoken on this show about repression. What is repression? Well, repression is a psychological term, you know, professional psychological term, meaning the uh, ability that we have to keep from thinking about certain things. You know, we may know there's something coming up, but we don't want to dwell on it because we have other things we want to do. So we all have that experience. There's something anxiety-provoking, let's say, a, I don't know, a public speech or something like that coming up. We're, we're worried about it. You mean like, like being on television? Maybe like this, <laughs> yes. Uh, we're worried about it, but we have to sleep and we have to eat. We know it's going to tie us up in knots otherwise if we had it in our consciousness all the time. So we have this ability to sort of put it off to the side and not think about it. And repression is really sort of a fancy word to talk about that ability to 
keep things from our consciousness. Dan, some of the people on our show have talked about human beings being hungry for illusions. Mm -hmm. Why are we hungry for illusions and for symbolic immortality? Well, I mean, if reality is that we're, that we're going to die, that we're mortal, and we have this urge, this sort of overriding organismic urge to keep living, one of the ways that we can deal with that, one of the ways that we can keep that from our consciousness is to tell us, tell ourselves stories about how we're really immortal, how we're really not going to die. Death may happen to other people, but it doesn't happen to me because I'm special. These kind of illusions can take all sorts of different paths, but essentially we have to create illusions because reality is too stark for us to take full in the face. Another concept they've talked about here is the concept of transference. Could you mm -hmm. explain what transference is? Well, transference is a, is a word that comes out of psychoanalysis. And basically, in, in psychoanalysis, it means when you play out in your relationship with your psychoanalyst, a previous relationship, usually with your father or with a, some other authority figure, you take the feelings you had from that relationship in your real life and you transfer it now to your feelings with your analyst. So, you, so it, it distorts your, your sense of what's actually happening in the psychoanalytic session by, let's say, you think your analyst hates you or whatever, that kind of thing. You're, but Becker talked about transference, and I think this is one of the, one of the really important things that in his writings. Transference simply describes any relationship we have with an authority figure in which we sort of, you know, we feel ourselves weak and we feel ourselves vulnerable and we project onto our, onto authority figures the feeling that, well, they, they're strong. They know, they know what's going on. I'm ignorant, but they know what's going on. They have things under control. I may be out of control. They're under control. And so we sort of psychologically attach ourselves to them and draw from their strength to give us a sense that we also now, through them, are under control or in the, you know, in the know or have, or are strong or whatever. And that's really that kind of expanded transference relationship that, so, so it's something in our, in our everyday social relationships, not something only in a analytic session. So transference is normal behavior or transference is neurotic behavior or transference is both? Well, it's, it's normal behavior in the sense that we all do it. And we have to do it. That's the, that's one of the mechanisms by, through which we can keep ourselves distracted from the reality of our actual situation, the, the existential situation of mortality, vulnerability, and so forth. So we all do it. It can become, let's, let's don't say neurotic, but we can, let's say dysfunctional. When, for example, you get obsessed with a certain, you know, you have to have your hair just combed exactly in the right way and it'll take you hours a day to get it right so that it looks like Elvis or it looks like some other transference figure that you've attached to. And it, it, starts to, it starts to interfere with your ability to function normally in life. Then you would say that it's, you know, then it's, it's, it's a, problem. a problem. Yeah, it's a problem. I'm sure our viewers at this point are saying, what does this have to do with leadership? Let me, let me just recap a second what, what we're talking about here. We're mortal creatures. We but we know we're going to die, and so we have anxiety. And to deal with the anxiety, we repress it. We seek symbolic immortality. In, in other words, we seek to overcome death in other things. And one way is to, is to transfer authority to others, so we seek immortality 
in others. You see, protection, protection, from, protection right. from mortality might be another okay. way to, instead of going the whole yes. hog and saying okay. immortality, protection against, against our mortality, against our vulnerability, against our weakness. That's essentially what leaders provide for us as an adequate transference object. If they are an unscrupulous person and want to take advantage of that, they've really got you in a, in a stranglehold because you need them. You need their approval. You need their sense that you're a worthy follower or whatever it would be. And so it's, it's easy to be manipulated in a position like that. What is the extreme form? What's toxic leadership? What makes a leader, especially a toxic leader, is when they really don't care that much about the well-being of their followers. They're really just in this for their own gratification of whatever form that gratification takes. And that's dangerous because you're a leader of a large group. There's a lot of power in a large group, and that can be unleashed in a lot of different ways. So really, this whole theory explains how people can come under the spell of a Hitler or a Stalin or a Saddam Hussein or a Manuel Noriega. I mean, we sit back and we look and say, how could you possibly respect that person as a leader? Don't you see that they're awful people? But yet, you're saying that we are vulnerable to this kind of leader, especially someone who instinctively knows how to play on this psychological need that we have. I wouldn't say that this theory explains it exhaustively, but it's all a mix of social condition, historical situation, the technology of, that's available, and so forth. But, but yeah, given that right mix of things, there is this, this, this theory goes a long way in explaining, for example, why people would find themselves doing something in a group authorized by a leader to do it, that later on when they're out of that situation and they maybe after they've seen that leader knocked off the pedestal, so to speak, and they're out of that group situation, they're totally amazed that they could ever have done such a thing. You know, and that's also, usually we think of that as negative acts, but it's also positive acts. That was really heroic what I did. I, that's, that's out of the ordinary for me. I mean, so it can go positive or negative, but usually it's negative. Why are we so fascinated with people who hold power? Well, because in a sense, they, if we want to say it this way, their, their sort of unspoken promise to you is, I will make you strong. I will make you invulnerable. You partake in my invulnerability, my strength, my power, which is another way of saying, I'll, I will in take care of you. Yeah, in exchange for your, for your following me, I will conquer death for you. And so that basically a leader that is an adequate transference object is a leader that assists us, aids us in dealing with that underlying death anxiety, that underlying rumble that we all feel. Now, this is interesting because we're talking about leaders, but yet we've been talking about us mm -hmm. more than the leaders. What's the relationship between the leaders and the followers? Well, in a given culture, there's a certain set of maybe personality characteristics or whatever that sort of exemplify the born leader in that culture. In our culture, it might be strong individualism or a, a sense of a lot of knowledge or something like that. And so when a leader starts to gather followers, the followers are initially, I think, attracted to that person for those qualities. They sort of exemplify the best, the thing, the, what our culture holds up as the best qualities that a human could have. In another culture, they may be bizarre qualities, but in our culture... Those qualities are what we hold up as the best of that human beings can be. And so we start to, this, the leader starts to gather followers on that basis. 
But once this transference dynamic is in process, then in a sense, the leader is just as tied to the followers as the followers are to the leader. The leader has these maybe these natural qualities to begin with, but the, but the followers want immortality. In other words, they want more and more and more. And the leader, in a sense, gets to the point where that person has to run ahead and keep trying to project themselves more and more as superhuman. And since I think by definition we could agree that no human is superhuman, <laughs> they get themselves into a bind where they can be just as trapped by the need to, to continue to be adequate for their followers as their followers are trapped being enthralled to the leader. And I'll tell you one thing, history is totally full of examples where once the leader no longer, in a sense, they let their they let the underside show, you know, the Toto pulls back the, the, uh, curtain. the curtain and, and people see that they're just mortal human beings like everyone else. Pay no attention to that, that man behind no, the curtain. That's, that's exactly right. Once that happens, history is full of examples of where the people will turn on their form, someone that they formerly looked at literally as God. They'll turn on that person so fast and even kill them or, you know, it can be very, very dangerous for a leader to be deflated as a leader, you might say. So we all have this need to project this thing onto a leader and find someone to follow, basically, from what you're saying. How does a group go about choosing a leader? Well, I guess that depends on the group. It depends on the history. You know, if you're talking about how does a, how does a congregation choose their minister, it would depend which congregation and what their, you know, what the traditions of that particular religion are and so forth. If you're talking about... Usually by committee. Well, yeah, <laughs> which is a great way to choose a leader. Right. If you're talking about nations, then different, again, different nations do it different ways. We tend to do it by elections. We put people on television and sort of test out how good of a transference object they're going to be. And then if they can show that they're strong and that they can face a television camera well and they can project these ideas or these images that we need for our own well-being, then we say that's a good candidate and we vote for them and whatever. If, if they just have good ideas but they're not good in front of a camera and they, they're not, they don't seem to be a leader... You know, they may have great ideas. They may have great political savvy in terms of how to get those ideas through the legislature and all this kind of stuff. But if they don't have that leadership quality, which is intangible. That's sweetens it's, it's, that something. That sweetens it's, it's irrational. We just reject them really quick, really quickly. And we, we end up then in, in our, in our particular culture, we end up with leaders that basically are good television. They're good with the media. That's what we get. We don't necessarily get the people who have the best ideas, nor the people who have the best ability to think in terms of how a large social system works and how we can uh, balance rights and, and responsibilities throughout the society. We don't get that. What we get are people that are really good at manipulating the, me the media, and they have their wizards behind them to help them do that. And it's starting again. Dan, we've touched on this. How does a leader take a group into violent behavior? Well, again, you have to look at specific situations, and there's a lot of factors involved. But I think one of the central factors is, that relates to what we're talking about is that the leader is constantly running to stay ahead of, of his group, so to speak, or her group. And when a leader starts to feel vulnerable, when a leader starts to feel like maybe the group is not following me anymore or starting to suspicion my ability to, to lead... One of the things you can do to take the group's mind or the group's attention away from you is to focus it on something else. And we call that a, we call that a, a scapegoating process. 
And so one of the things that a leader can do is focus the group's attention on an enemy. It can be almost any kind of enemy. It can be a a particular individual, if it's a smaller group, it can be a social a social group, it can be a certain religion, it can be a certain race, it can be a certain sexual preference. But what you'll see over and over again, and I think this is sort of what I think there was a film out some years ago called Wag, Wag the Dog. The dog. And, and I, just think, what I was thinking. Yes, yeah. and sort of what I think they were getting at there was this idea that when a leader finds themselves in trouble, there's a possible focus on attention that's going to knock them off the pedestal. One of the things they can do is focus attention elsewhere through directing people's violence towards a, a scapegoat. What does it mean to scapegoat an individual or, or a group or a nation or whatever? It's basically telling people everything would be great if we could just see they're the ones mucking, mucking up the whole situation, and if we can just get rid of them, everything will be fine. And so the group is happy to have its attention focused on what it needs to do to have, make everything right again. And which again is another way of saying conquer death or conquer evil. And so the group can be led by a leader into extremely bizarre and violent behavior. Again, that's the kind of thing that afterwards a person might say, did I really do that? How could I have done that? But as part of a group that's given sanction for it by a leader, some certain kind of leader in the right situations, people can do very, very violent, very vile kinds of things to other people. Dan, uh, typically leadership is described, at least for us, in terms of intellect or having a vision or motivating Mm -hmm. or inspiring or listening or persuading. People like Winston Churchill and Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi and Joan of Arc and John F. Kennedy come to mind. Are we saying that these aren't actually special people? They're just people that were shoved in front of the parade? (laughs) Well, yeah, I like that image, shoved in front of the parade. No, I think these people are ones that in the in their time and their place, they had the personality characteristics that were privileged by that, whatever culture they were in, as good leadership qualities. And again, if they, if you, you took a Winston Churchill and put him in, let's say, a Navajo society or something like that, those those kinds of characteristics might be considered very bizarre. But given the, given the time and the place that he was in and the cultural background of his situation and so forth, he exemplified those kind of leadership qualities. And I think all of the people you mentioned do maybe a little bit differently. I think Gandhi, for example, would be a quite different type of a leader than Churchill or Kennedy. But they exemplify the qualities that will make people look to them and say, I would like to be like that person. I would like I feel this kind of hole in me, and that f- person seems to fill it. And, I, and so they become enthralled with that person and follow after them and so forth. We as a nation have been through a period of intense leadership disappointment. What's wrong with American leadership, and how do we nurture or attract better leaders? I think that essentially in America we've had a tradition of looking at the leader as a, as a transference object, but also the institution. And in a sense, as long as the institution was strong, the leader could, the leaders could shift and come and go. Or vice versa, if the institution is weak, but you've got very strong leaders at that particular time, things also kind of balance out. But we, we're sort of in a situation where many of our leaders have disappointed us. And the big danger is that we will also lose faith in the institutions at the same time. 
And that's when you really start to have a collapse of a... That's when a culture comes apart, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying irreparably, but at least that's when we start to really feel a sort of cultural malaise, the kind of thing Jimmy Carter talked about. But then how do we nurture better leaders? Well, I think that one of the things we can do is when we find ourselves expecting our leaders to be superhuman, we need to slow down do a little introspection and recognize that that person's a human being just like the rest of us. We all want John Kennedy again. We all want that time. What was it about that, that Kennedy Camelot? Well, Kennedy made us feel good about ourselves. And I think that's one of the things that, that a good leader does. A good leader makes people feel good about themselves. I think maybe the difference between a, to get back to what's the difference between a good leader and a toxic leader. I think one of the things that a good leader does ultimately is want to help the people who are following him or her be stronger people, be more full people, be more educated or whatever it would be. But in other words, they use their leadership for the benefit of the, primarily to benefit the public. This is, I think, Gandhi's, Gandhi wasn't interested so much in having people, throngs of people adulating him, but he was very interested in taking people who were, who suffered from prejudice and from unjust institutions and giving them institutions where they could be free and so forth. And that's what a really good leader does. A good leader makes us feel good about ourselves at the same time that they're empowering, is the word we use in social work, empowering us to be better people. Bad leaders make us feel good about ourselves, at least for maybe a short period of time, but ultimately they aren't too interested in really strengthening the people who are their followers. Uh, well, how do we improve the situation? How can we as followers make better decisions and make better leaders? Make the world better. Make, yeah. By being better people ourselves, by being more aware of the kinds of puppet strings that are potentially there to be jerked around. And uh, I mean, we all need our illusions. Even, even, even the enlightened need their illusions. They need their illusions of being enlightened, I suppose. <laughs> but essentially by being more aware ourselves, we then allow our leaders to be also human beings who have some qualities that are good for the group at this time and place, but we aren't expecting them to be Superman. That's good advice. Our guest has been Dr. Daniel Lichty of Illinois State University. Dan, thank you for a fascinating conversation. Hey, it's been fun. Thank you, Dan. You have been listening to an interview with Dan Lichty on leadership, particularly in 21st century America. By the way, I wish everyone listening could have the opportunity to meet Dan Lichty. He is one of the nicest, most thoughtful people I've ever met. He really goes out of his way to help you and to understand where you're coming from. He teaches counseling and does hospice work. What does that tell you? This is a selfless hero in our book. I couldn't agree more, Steve. Dan is a really great guy with a great sense of humor. Yeah. So... Mr. Swain, what's your takeaway? Steve, I think the big idea in all this is the Freudian notion of transference. Transference is a very big topic and one we will also be returning to later. Dan says it's normal and that we all do this. We need to believe that through our authority figures, we have things under control. They defend us. We unconsciously want them to protect us from our mortality. We all need the authority's approval, whether it's from parents, from teachers, or bosses, but especially from people with power that we can share in. Yeah, this is a really important idea, and I, I don't think many people 
understand it. But in this democracy, we unconsciously evaluate potential leaders in terms of how good a transference object they are. They also need to have other intangible leadership qualities, but mostly in the present world, they have to look good on television. Yeah, isn't that incredible? Yeah. Dan really hit that one well. Our candidates aren't necessarily the ones with the best ideas or talents, but they're good on television. Right. Well, I I like the way Dan differentiated between good leaders and toxic leaders. Yeah. He says all leaders make us feel good about ourselves. The best leaders empower us. Toxic leaders are all about themselves and less about the common good. What's a good example of a toxic leader in your mind? Gee, I don't know. Donald J. Trump? (laughs) Isn't he the poster child? Yep. Yeah, let's, but let, let's not dwell on Trump alone. Dan says that unscrupulous leaders have us in a stranglehold because we need them. We need their approval that we are worthy followers, and so we are easily manipulated. Toxic leaders don't care about the well-being of their followers. Trump. <laughs> they care most about what's in it for them. Gratification. Trump. We are vulnerable to toxic leaders. I thought we weren't going to dwell on Trump. I couldn't help myself. Sorry. Trump. (laughs) Have you got that all out of your system now? I guess for now. For now. Let's let's talk about what passes for leadership in the U.S. Dan notes that in our culture, which is not universal, but works here, that our leaders must project strong individualism and be good on television. Do they appear strong? Do they face the camera well? This is hilarious. Do they face the camera well? Yeah. He says it's irrational. And he's not the first to say this, but, well, he said this probably before Yuval Noah Harari wrote that democracy is all about emotion, not rationality. We're talking here about unconscious processes. Right. I would add that the candidates must look the part and sound the part and, amazingly, have a short name like Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Bill Clinton, George Bush. Wow. I think Joe Biden definitely fills the bill. If I were casting a movie and needed an actor to play the president, I would want Joe Biden. He looks and sounds the part. He's a good actor, too, when he gets righteously angry or sentimental. It's good television. Not long on policy ideas or proposals, or his voting record, for that matter. What about Barack Obama? A lot of syllables. That's true. And he had tough opponents like John McCain and Mitt Romney, three syllables each. But he was fortunate in that, in my opinion, he was in the right place at the right time. African Americans desperately wanted a black president. But think about it. He was great on TV, looked presidential in every other way except skin tone, sounded presidential, was squeaky clean, and had no record to hold against him. What we in America tend to get 
are leaders who are good at manipulating the media, like Trump, who's a master at it, and who have really talented wizards behind them. Okay, Bernie Sanders? The opposite of Biden. Lots of great new ideas and policy proposals, but just didn't look the part or have the right voice or accent. I can't tell you how many people I know said they didn't like him. Even people who completely agreed with him. It's as if we were electing homecoming queen. He had to be likable, whatever that is. Isn't it unbelievable? You- it is. Likable? Why, why do you want a likable president? Why do you want a likable leader? I don't know. How about Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, and Kamala Harris? Well, in my opinion, they don't look and sound like men, and therefore don't look and sound presidential to Americans. I'm not saying a woman can't or shouldn't be president, but it will be hard for a woman to get elected president in America. That's partly because of uh, historical memories about presidents. We've never seen a female president, and also right. because of the way our system works. It's going to take some, right. it's going to take time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, who knows how long, but yes, it's going to take time. We as a country would rather have a male game show host than an accomplished woman. So it would seem. So it would seem. Another important concept, scapegoating, that Sheldon Solomon mentioned in a much earlier episode. Mm. Dan notes that when a leader starts to feel vulnerable, they may use the scapegoating process to focus the group's attention on an enemy, an individual, a social group, a race, a religion, or a sexual preference, or another nation. Wag the dog. Wag the dog. Conquer evil. Yeah. What Bill Clinton was accused of when he attacked terrorist camps in Afghanistan to distract from the Monica Lewinsky scandal. I'm not saying that that's what he was really doing, but but that's what he was accused of. Wag the dog. Yep. Dan stressed that the leadership qualities he described were specific to the leader's time and place. Well, I maintain that in our present culture that's experiencing an epidemic of narcissism, which is, you know, a conversation for another time, but I don't think it's a coincidence that we elected a narcissist in chief. (laughs) But anyway, that's, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that another day. Dan talked about the traditional strength of our U.S. institutions more than the leaders within them. When we lose faith in our institutions, that's when a culture comes apart, and I think we're living through that now. Yeah, I agree. I like Dan saying that good leaders empower us. He said it's a social work term, and it's a good one. We are empowered to be better. Yeah, and I really like Dan's way for us to have better leaders. It's pretty simple. We have to be better people ourselves. Yeah, yeah, that's simple but hard. Ain't that the truth. So, we've been talking about leadership and the importance in our society. These are important ideas. Aren't they? Join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. And support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash thehubimportantideas. We are 100% listener supported. Thank you for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well.